Today, we're sharing a conversation between two powerful women, Rashida Graham Washington, who calls herself a justice fighter, with Color Forward co-host Rosa Santos. And Rosa facilitates transformation for an organization of 60,000 employees. So you have two incredible women. They both live in the same city. And back in November, they took advantage of their proximity to meet up. They talk about power, victimization, flat leadership, owning your own success. The sound isn't very good because they're at Rashida's coffee shop and we were just at this time getting our podcast ducks in a row. We also wanted to give you an opportunity to be a fly on the wall as Rosa gets to know Rashida. It's a great time to just hear two awesome women having an elevated conversation. It is my joy and my pleasure to be with you and to be a part of the Color Forward tribe. I'm so excited. So I am a neighbor and a friend and a sibling and a mom and a daughter and a TT, not an aunt, but a TT. (laughs) And I'm also, I think uh, in my own way, I'm a justice fighter. Um, I'm a community connector Mm -hmm. and a reflector. And I'm an entrepreneur. Yes, you are. And I can say that now pretty assertively, which hasn't always been true. And now I know that I am an (laughs) entrepreneur. I own Live Cafe and Creative Space, and I own a boutique consulting firm called RGW, which stands for Reimagining and Generating Wonder. Obviously, it also stands for Rashida Graham Washington. I so Uh, because I think, yeah, I think for women of color, we have to stake our claim, if that makes any sense, mm-hmm. and be unapologetic about ownership. Just because if we're not, we will become sometimes timid ourselves. So I need to wake up every day and see my initials on something as a calling into certainty in a world that would otherwise make me really unsure of myself. But also to recognize that nothing is centered on me. So while it is RGW, what does that really mean? What that really means is that I get to go all over the country and all over the world as a consultant, helping people reimagine what their lives and their organizations and their communities could look like, sound like, and feel like. And that is the joy of my life that we reimagine and generate wonder as a woman of color who feels like it is also high time that we hold a dignified indignation, that we hold the line on some things and that that's not being mean or angry or bitter or all the things that women get labeled as when they hold the line on justice issues, but that it is being an advocate and it is being a community organizer, and it is being an agent for change. As I think about my identity, all of that is sort of rooted in who I am. I am also, and I always say this for last, because so many women name it first, I'm a mother. And I don't name it first because I want to shift the paradigm that because a woman is a mother, that's what they have to be first. It is not the center of who I am, though it is one of the greatest joys I experience in my life. My way of being, my passions around art and music and culture and entrepreneurship 
and travel and food, yes. right, is as important to me as, as my mothering and informs my mothering. So I frame it that way to invite women who have been wanting to say this but are afraid because society might judge or shame them to say that it's okay that mothering is not the be all and end all of your existence and you can still mother well and have all these other passions and desires. People will say things like, where are your children? <laughs> or how are your children handling this? But when men do the same work that we do and they travel globally, no one ever asks a man, where are your children and how are, are they okay? And there is this sort of judging shame that's implicit in it. And I think, here's the irony, that the whole world thought my kids were suffering something because I wasn't doing the traditional model, but they actually live quite liberated lives and still see the possibility of mothering and not having to sacrifice all of everything else they are because they've seen a model of women, not just myself, but my colleagues and friends who they've grown up watching that says you, can, you really can do all the things you want to do with your life. This concept, like you choose mm -hmm. what you want and you choose what success is for you, yes. right? Yes, and that that definition can sound very different from one human being to the next. And I think the other important thing to note is that that's not to demonize or villainize a more traditional model. I know women who thrive on being a mom, having that be their number one focus and priority. They love it every day of their lives and it's all they want to do with their lives is just show up to mommy. I think that's amazing. Mm -hmm. I just think it shouldn't be the only model we have and we can cheer each other on based on whatever models we choose. But there have to be multiple models present in order for us to truly be making a choice. And so a lot of my work is about model making. That even as a professional woman, <laughs> the 1950s version of an executive just does not quite fit for me. Number one, I don't have a wife at home baking and cooking and cleaning on my behalf. So as an executive leader, what my needs would be in terms of how I structure my work, in terms of my support system, even who my executive assistant is and how she operates will be very different from that 1950s model that was really built for white men. As a woman of color, what kinds of supports do I need around me in order to thrive and be successful? Because if I try to do my work using an antiquated model, I'm not sure that my work would be sustainable. But we have to be courageous enough to unapologetically start to build into the model those considerations so that women who come behind us will have a model that's a better fit for them. Yeah. How did that start? Can you share with us, you know, how you grew up? I was born out of resilience and I grew up in a blended household. So my great-grandmother was in the house with me since I could remember until she passed away. She was always a central part of my life and for most of my childhood lived in the house with me. She had a third grade education and uh, she was also hard of hearing and did not get to go far in school because she had um, sight problems and hearing problems. And I just thought it was absolutely incredible 
that she still had so much wisdom in spite of these challenges. Mm -hmm. And she could say something to me in one sentence that would either wreck my life or change my life, depending on what her aim was, right? So this critical, potent force in my life was coming from a Black woman who had a third grade education and had vision issues and hearing issues. And so that taught me like that we can all have deficits and challenges and still be a force to be reckoned with. I learned that very early on in my life. She was hilarious. She taught me the value and importance of laughter. She had a very big, strong, boisterous laugh. So much so, Rosa, that it would make you laugh and someone else would come in the room and say, what are y'all laughing at? You didn't even know. You're like, I don't know. I'm laughing because she's laughing. laughing. (laughs) She really taught me (laughs) that you can have joy in the face of adversity. And it is your perception on life that dictates and determines whether or not you have joy even in the face of hard, hard situations. So I didn't know I was experiencing economic poverty until I went to undergrad. Originally, my undergraduate degree was in education and English literature. So I read a lot of social work books and I would be reading about these people who lived in these communities. And I'm like, are they talking about me? That was the first time that I realized like, oh, oh, wait, am I poor? (laughs) It took an academic intellectual environment to even make that a real thing in my life. And I think that really speaks to the fact that while the upper echelon in terms of socioeconomics is feeling sad and bad and hard for people who are experiencing fiscal poverty, it's not always the case that the people who are experiencing that are feeling that way about themselves. Right. And it is out of that energy and power that people who are experiencing fiscal poverty, if they were afforded the access and exposure and resources necessary, they could pull themselves out of that circumstance. I come from a very working class family. My parents lived the first 37 years of their lives in a dictatorial regime with Franco in Spain, where despite where we were and where we lived, I never realized where I came from until I went to college. And I thought everybody was like us in terms of all the values that were instilled in the house, fostering this thirst for independence, for knowledge, for wanting to get out and see the world. My parents sent us when we were very little to England, to France. My my older sister is a French lecturer. There's a whole fan of opportunities there. If you're given the opportunity, you don't need anybody. No. You can do it yourself. Right? It's true. It's true. And and sometimes we we fall in this sense of victimism mm-hmm, sometimes. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there's so many other things happening around us that to a certain extent we, we are. Right? We are. But if we're only given the exposure and it's like, no, we're not asking for pity. We're That's asking right. we're asking for the opportunity. When you talk about victimization, I think it's a really important topic. I lead a workshop called Victim Oppressor, where I basically walk people through the philosophy that we're all victims and we're all oppressors. We tend to want to reject one, the other, or both, depending on the life experiences we've had. But when we think about the ways that systems work and institutions operate, 
whether we want to be victims or not. Systemically, we are victims of things that happen as a result of the way that systems work in our world. And as human beings who are fallible and who want to overcome and who have inertia and agency, oftentimes the, the energy or power of uh, agency and inertia gets all over things. And that is what causes us to be oppressors. And the value in knowing that we're capable of both is that we can now extend a grace and a compassion and empathy towards other people when they show up in our lives as victims and towards other people when they show up in our lives as oppressors. And I'm not saying to lay down and let somebody walk over you, but if I can name a time when I have been oppressive, then it will at least afford me the space in my life to sit down at a table with someone who has oppressed and to hold them accountable. Because if I can't see that in myself, I will have nothing for the other person. And then we can't even start the conversation that could potentially transform the oppressor. And those are the kinds of conversations that I think matter. Because if we can stop oppression, we will create more of that slice of life for women of color to be able to experience the world. I love how you describe uh, your success and how you own it Mm -hmm. and this idea of being unapologetically who you are. Mm -hmm. Was it vision ever important for you? And if so, how? Even as a child, that's all I did, mostly run my mouth about dreams. (laughs) I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that and I'm going to do this. You know, are kids normally allowed to do these kinds of things? So I think it's always been a part of my DNA to be a leader and to execute a vision. I thrive in environments where that is afforded to me. I think what has evolved in the last 15 years is how I go about the execution of my vision. So I'll see something that I want to do. And 15 years ago, I would have been a top down hierarchical leader where I have all the vision, you may or may not even know what it is, and I'm delegating down into a system what needs to be done, and you just need to do it, and you might not even know completely why you're doing it. And for me, it was like, because I asked you to. Right. So I'm really grateful for the transformation that has happened in the life of my leadership, where I've come to really understand the value of collaboration and flat leadership, where we share power, and where power can be a neutral concept, like literally I can take power and sit it down. And that is important because then different people can pick it up and put it back. Somebody else could pick it up and put it back. And it is leveraged as needed on an as needed basis, which is or isn't always necessary to get something done. And I like that as a black woman, As an owner of a coffee shop and the CEO of a boutique consulting firm, there is associated with the formal authority of my role. And sometimes that's important and I can pick it up, I can leverage it, I can use it, right? Taking that power, the reins of that power is sometimes quite appropriate to do, to say, these are resources that I demand to have access to on behalf of my community. That's exerting power quite intentionally. But there are other times when as the owner of this space, for example, I will lay my power down so that my team can start to participate and develop uh, their leadership, which only will happen if I'm willing to share my power as the quote unquote owner of the space.
And so I think I've always had vision, but how I execute on that vision has become much more collective, collaborative, communal, and a much more healthy way of harnessing power, recognizing that sometimes as a Black woman, I need to harness it for myself. Absolutely. But also there are times when I harness it in order to redispense it to other women of color. That is very, not just interesting, but I think it's so essential the way that you're actually providing that distinction for any other woman of color. Because I think sometimes we don't believe in our own power. That's right. Right? Yes. And, and sometimes we think that the power that we own is just ours and nobody else. That's right. And that's, that's what we've been taught. That's what we've been conditioned to believe. And it, when I really stop and think about it, because my career started in, in education, and I think about the classroom, even Rosa for elementary school, the way that we educate our kids is toward that model, sadly. Whoever can get their hand up first is the person we call on. Typically, the person who has the answer most frequently gets the most chances to answer when it probably should be the other way around. We don't empower our kids that if I'm the kid who's been getting the last five questions right, that as the teacher, would I call on that kid again and ask them this time who they would be willing to call on to help them get the response. That's teaching this kid who's doing great at school how to share power with kids who might not be meeting that mark yet. That's not the framework that we educate our kids in. We educate them in this traditionally competitive, consumerist, capitalistic way of being. And then they become adults who hoard and practice their leadership out of a model of scarcity rather than abundance. And then we say, I don't know why the world is like this. Well, we, <laughs> we made this. So tell me, because you just said that this is like this realization happened about 15 years ago, yeah. right? That it's been an evolution for you. Yes. How did you get there? Oh, <laughs> you want to make me think about that. <laughs> so I was a school principal at an elementary school in Inglewood. And Inglewood is one of the more underserved communities in the city of Chicago. And I kind of went there. I'll admit I had definitely this academic chip on my shoulder and I was going to go fix and change this school um, and turn this school around. And I did. The problem is that I did it almost single handedly. And when you do that, the, you will get results. They will not last. Because if it's all built on my back, if I move, if I leave, if I turn in the wrong direction, it all slides right off my back. I mean, I'll give you this example. The, the kids will come to school in the morning. They will have stopped at this corner store and bought all kinds of junk food. And that was going to be like their food for the day. And I thought I was doing a really good thing by just shutting that down. And eventually I got to school one morning. And one of my better teachers who really, really cared about the kids and would work all these extra hours and all of this was waiting on me in my office. You know, we all called each other by our last name. So she's sitting there. I'm like, you beat me to school. She's like, Graham, you are killing the kids. You're stopping them from eating junk food. And you think that's a good thing. But really, now they're not eating anything. So you're sending them to the classroom hungry every day. 
it just never occurred to me in my I have all the answers way of being that my solution could be a problem. And that's just one example of probably 4,000 that I lived out that school year, just turning that school around and this is what we need and this is what we need and that's not what you need to do is this. And I have all the answers. And for a year, I turned it, I left because I went on to start a school using a very different model. And within another year, one year, me being gone, the school had gone back to all the Yes. And that was heartbreaking because I could not deny that I was the reason why it wasn't sustainable. And so I never wanted to repeat that. So I went on this deep dive study of what kind of leadership is actually sustainable leadership and what kind of leadership would actually empower people to carry something beyond what I had to offer. And so with the next school where I was able to start a school from scratch, I did community listening sessions in the neighborhood. We canvassed the community and handed out materials. This new school is coming to your neighborhood. It was actually in the Austin community where I had been born and raised. Tell us what you want this school to be. I hired more than 50% of the staff from the Austin community. And I think that's the difference between a solo leader being hierarchical in their approach, patriarchal, colonialistic in their approach, and a leader who comes in with more of a servant leadership posture, who's willing to listen and give the people what they're asking for. Yeah, That was the turning point in my leadership. I have grown and evolved in that. I think there's still a lot of growth and evolution that I can do in that. I have a community of collaborators around me that I can bring into the conversation. So even now, the coffee shop generally is very slow in January and February. It seems weird because you would think people would want hot drinks, but they have hot drinks in their house. And if it's snowing in two degrees, they stay in their houses and drink them there, right? <laughs> I, I relate to that. Yes, I even relate to that. That makes sense to me. Yeah. And so... I've been doing the work of meeting with people in the community one-on-one, and I'm right now in the process of developing a SIT team, which stands for Support and Innovation Team. And these, I mean, literally, I have a physicist, I have a church leader, I have educators, community members, theater producers, because I need a brain trust around me to say, well, Rashid, I need finance people, right? Have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? Can we do this? What about this? Ideas that I would maybe never come to right, on my right, own. Right. I met with one of those folks yesterday and we have an online community where you can do auto replenishing your coffee beans at home. And so one of my colleagues was saying, well, if people stay home in January and February, have you ever extensively promoted the online coffee bean sales? If they're going to drink it at home, then that's a way to leverage revenue. I had never thought about doing that. And she's like, how did you not? And I'm like, I just did it. I needed you to tell me. I needed me. you to tell me. Yeah. But I think in order to have a true feedback loop, I have to take on a posture of receptivity for people to feel comfortable to give me that information. And I'll be honest with you, Rosa, as a black woman who has constantly been told, you can't do this, you can't do that, you're not this and you're not that, and this is wrong, and that's a failure, and this is a loss, and you can't come to that. 
it can sometimes be really challenging for me to open myself up to that kind of criticism because it triggers some of the old trauma of not being enough and not being worthy and, and being a failure and being a throwaway. So we have to balance the tension between the healthy form of critique and that old narrative that cycles through us that could cause imposter syndrome. Absolutely. Right. And I think women and particularly women of color hold those things in a special kind of way. Um, And it makes it more difficult for us to create that feedback. Yeah. And sometimes we don't even realize that we are living through an imposter syndrome. That's right. Or something that we went through that is still very much ingrained in how we process things. Mm -hmm. To even say to ourselves, it's okay. Yeah. Right? It is okay. I do um, executive coaching with women of color in leadership. And they will be talking to me about some idea and they will just spout something off as the truth and I will say how do you know that and they will stop and they will say I don't know how I know that and I will say do you actually believe that and then they will say I think I've only ever believed it but I'm not even sure why I believed it let's unpack that and in their coaching journey they might decide yes I've gone through the work of taking a look at it, and I believe that. And sometimes they go, I don't know where I got that from. I'm not sure if I believe that or not. And sometimes they say, something or someone gave that to me. I don't even want that. I don't even believe in that. But we have to freeze frame long enough to hold a thing and examine it and do the deconstructive work of determining, is this something I want to continue to carry on my journey? But no one ever invites us to do that to work. Do that. I mean, you irradiate optimism, <laughs> happiness. <laughs> I love being in your presence. <laughs> and I know you've gone, I'm sure, through a, a lot of challenges. Oh, sure. But rather than talking about the challenges, mm-hmm. And you said, I am the poster child of resiliency. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Let's not talk about the challenges, but let's talk about what helps you bounce back. I have a faith orientation. I'm a heavy faith spirit person. And when I think about the whole of my life, if I'm honest, when I have this challenge or this thing happen or this relationship that's broken or doesn't feel good, I think it is dishonorable to God in the universe. I mean, I come from a place where people would say business owners don't come from, where people would say postgraduate individuals don't come from. I know those to be lies. I was a teen mom. There's a narrative associated with that. I've outlived that narrative. I'm a black woman for crying out loud. The stress statistics alone means that I shouldn't be here. And then the other thing is when I look back in my life at those trials and tribulations and circumstances and I see where I am today, my story tells me that I will overcome what the next obstacle is. So there's this really interesting thing about me where when I get myself in a place of those kinds of circumstances, I can be sad and I can be down and even sometimes hopeless about it for a little while, but some part of me is curious about how is the universe gonna work this out for me? How is God going to like 
turn this thing because it's happened so many times that it makes me trust that like it could happen again. And some part of me is like, oh, I want to really know how this is going to go. So I could be weeping, Rosa. And still some little part of me is like, but don't you want to know how this chapter is going to end and how the next chapter is going to begin? Maybe someone would call that hopefulness. And maybe someone would call that faithfulness. But it's that curiosity and wonder in me that always makes me keep going because I can't wait to see how the story's going to unfold. Right. Yeah. That's so lovely. That's so beautiful. <laughs> and looking at yourself, you know, you're the product of your own desires mm. and you're making your own movie, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And writing your own script sure. at the end of the day. Yeah. And that yeah. in movies and scripts, there are more than one character. Exactly. And I think as a leader, it's really, really important for me to name that I suffer imposter syndrome, that I have PMDD, which is like PMS on steroids. <laughs> so two weeks out of the month, I'm not myself and I can be a force to be reckoned with that I'm a black woman in America. All the disparities and lack of access and exposure, that's all still true of my life. And so I want to avoid the temptation of making it sound so beautiful and amazing and successful that people miss the part where I grieve racial inequity and how it impacts my life every day. How this cafe could probably be 10 cafes if I lived in a white man's body, but I don't. How my journey will be slower because of the way that the world experiences me and how I grieve that every day, but that I don't only hold that, that I also hold joy and wonder and curiosity and relationship and community. And that together, those things comprise the wholeness of my life. Yeah. You know? Beautiful. <laughs> hey, one question that we ask everybody, and I think I or we can probably surmise that, but if you were to summarize barriers that you've overcome oh. to be here, hmm. uh, what would you name as, as your top two or three barriers? I used to work in what I refer to as corporate education because I know that education is nonprofit, but trust me when I tell you, it is corporate. And I had to wear a suit every day and I had to wear my hair relaxed and I had to do all the things to fit all the bills. And this was a very gradual transformation for me where I finally got to the place where I said, I will not play that game anymore. I'm black and I'm going to wear my hair like I'm black. I have indigenous Cherokee blood. I'm going to wear my hair like I have indigenous Cherokee blood. Um, I'm a woman. And so if I want to put on a pair of lace tights, that's what I'm going to do. And I don't have to leave parts of myself at home to make other people comfortable. In fact, me showing up more fully who I am invites people into a space of discomfort where they can learn the practice of adjusting themselves and practicing cultural agility getting around me, maneuvering around me, rather than me spending my whole life maneuvering around status quo and dominant culture. For me, cultural agility is showing up completely who I am and extending the invitation for dominant culture people to practice their agility around me. Around you yes. and learn about people, and that, learn about us. Yes, that's a radical, courageous act every day. Yeah. You would be amazed, Rosa, at 
<laughs> how some mornings I wrestle with my conditioned self and my conscious self. I'll put my hair down so that my shade size don't show. Then I'll go make coffee. Then I'm like, no. And then I go back in the mirror and I put it back up and I'm like, yes, I'm scared. But it feels very schizophrenic that all this lives inside my one body. Yeah. And I'm trying to really kind of figure out which part of my consciousness I'm feeling courageous enough to live into. And we're always too something. We're always too heavy or too thin or too dark or too light or this dress is too tight or it's too big or, you know and it's just like when are we just enough right where we sit in our bodies and when will the world receive the invitation to be agile around how we just authentically show up in the world so let's think of those women who are not who are not living their lives apologetically who get up in the morning and actually have to relax their hair, sure. right? Yes. I mean, what would you say to those folks who are in that place and need that push or that hump to, yeah. to move forward and to help them see hope, as you said? Mm -hmm. yeah. There's an exercise that I call the Y drill down. It's the Y drill down. And so when you say, well, I'm not living out my life the way I want, then I go, well, why? Well, because I don't have this or because I'm afraid. Well, why? Well, I'm afraid because I've never seen anybody do it before. Well, why haven't you seen anybody do it before? Well, I just I don't think I know where I should look. Well, where could you look? Right. And then we go down until we get to something that nails agency and action. Something that is like, oh, I could do that thing if I just turn that, it will raise me up a level in my wide drill down. And then when you do that and you find success, then what emerges is what I refer to as what else factor. What else? Because if I drill down, so I'll give you an example. I have a client who's just not been all together pleased with her vocational life. And I'm like, why? And she's like, oh, because this is this is happening in my company. When you say that, like, that's my only company. If you're not happy with what's happening there, why are you still there? Right. And she's like, oh, I don't know. I guess I've not really done anything to put my name out there. And I'm like, well, what would happen if you did? So that was her thing, right? And so that became her actionable item. She just started putting her resume in places to see what would happen. The next two weeks, she had three interviews. And I'm like, do you understand that two weeks ago you had no options and two weeks ago you did that? And then she was like, well, what else could I do? That's the what else factor, right? right? right. And so my advice to women who are feeling stuck in that way is to do that wide drill down on their lives until they hit something. What you hit is some actionable item. Do that thing and it will create the next step for you. So this woman now has three job offers and she's kind of trying to decide which one she wants to take, you know? And I'm like, look what you did with your life. And that made her look at another relationship in her life. And she's like, and I don't really like the way that's operating. And I'm like, well, why? And so she's now embarking on a conversation with that person to create a healthier relationship with them. 
So if she keeps doing that across her life in a year, she'll have a very different experience. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And I think what I would add to what you're saying is if you are there, do the wife for somebody else. It's not oh, so. please. Right? Yes. I do believe we have the responsibility to lift others up. Absolutely. But in a meaningful way. Mm-hmm. Not just saying it, but mm-hmm. walking it and acting on it. Mm-hmm. I like that because we always say, and in corporate America, also, well, you need to have your board. Yes. Right? Yes. And you need to have your network mm-hmm. and you have to network. But that's so superficial. Totally. Right? And it, 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 what you want is exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. We, what we want is folks who really have our backs. Yes. And they can hold ourselves accountable yes. to what we say, our goals, our visions, our lives. Yes. Should look and be like. And I think we need to create those moments. For ourselves, sure. also for others, like what you and I are feeling right mm-hmm. now. I think it's our responsibility and imperative yeah. that we oh, actually yeah. provide that outlook for other folks. And that's why this is so, so exciting. I love it. Yeah. I love it. I'm so grateful. <laughs> I uh, want to really thank you from the bottom of my heart. Oh my goodness. This was my pleasure. Oh, thank you so and, much. Yes, thank you. And, uh, <laughs> definitely, this is just the beginning of a wonderful relationship. I think so. Yeah. I hope so. <laughs> was Rosa Santos interviewing Rashida Graham Washington, CEO of RGW Consulting and owner of Live Cafe. For more inspiring stories, please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have a guest you'd love to hear on the show, send us a DM on Instagram at colorforwardpod. I'm Elisa Monjadas, producer of Color Forward. Thanks for joining us and please leave us a review.